0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, L.A. Opera's Associate Chorus Master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of L.A. Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series, When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera with pairings to some of his favorite beverages. In this special podcast audio edition of Opera Happy Hour, Jeremy explores how opera transcends space, time, and cultural genres while inviting everyone to take a sip and enjoy opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers.
1: Hi, and welcome to season two of Opera Happy Hour. My name is Jeremy Frank. I am the Associate Chorus Master at LA Opera, and I will be your host, pianist, singer, curator, scholar, AV editor. In fact, one could say that I'm the factotum della città. That wink is for you, regular opera-goers, who know that I'm making an in-joke about the character Figaro, who sings the super-famous and highly virtuosic aria Largo al Factotum from the Barber of Seville, that I just played the introduction to. Even if you don't know that a factotum is someone who does a little bit of everything and always gets the job done, and that the character Figaro is the factotum of all factotums, I'll bet you our next round of drinks that you recognized the music that opened tonight's episode. Maybe you thought to yourself, hey, haven't I heard that music on Bugs Bunny? Yes, yes you have. Or maybe you simply thought that the music sounded somehow familiar to you. Regardless of your reaction to that tune, I want to start this episode and this entire season in the deep end of the pool with a really important philosophical debate. That is, is opera for the popular masses, or do you have to be some kind of part of a secret cultural elite to get it? Is opera highbrow? Can it ever be lowbrow? Can you just come from anywhere and belong to this opera crowd as much as somebody who can rattle off their favorite Kalas recording without even taking a breath? The short and hopefully very obvious answer to this is yes, of course. And a more nuanced and accurate answer is that for most of its history, opera could be both entertainment for an aristocratic audience and popular entertainment, usually at the same time. Many of the most genius composers were so skilled at blurring boundaries between these two that if they lived now, they would be huge proponents, as I am, of the hashtag opera for all. Now, I just made some pretty big claims, which I'd like to back up with a little bit of music history and some musical examples, which are simultaneously some of the most transcendent moments of opera, and also some of the most frequently quoted snippets in popular American culture, commercials, and film. But first, we're going to need some refreshment for this debate. And with that, I'd like to transition to our drink pairing. For our purposes today, I thought I would steer us in a direction that is distinctly populist, and in just a few minutes you'll see exactly why, but for that reason, I'm just simply drinking light beer. Uh, It's really easy for us to sometimes assume that the appropriate drink pairing for opera is of course champagne, and that certainly can be fun, Uh, and (laughs) you might make an argument that light beer is in fact a sort of poor man's champagne but uh, I just thought it sounded like a good drink pairing for today, definitely refreshing, and if the idea is going to be that opera is something that can be and should be accessible to everybody, there's nothing quite like light beer to equal the playing field for everybody. Now, right out of the gate, I need to acknowledge that the earliest opera dating from around 1600 was, in fact, created for and consumed by aristocratic courts. And for around 75 years, give or take, that's about all there was. These early operas were often about serious classical, mythological, or historic themes, and eventually, in the 18th century, this kind of piece evolved into the genre that we now know as opera seria but very quickly a second track of comedic opera evolved which coincided with the dawning of the Age of Enlightenment. This track of opera took place in the form of intermezzi or short, funny opera fragments that would be performed on the intermissions between acts of the serious operas. By 1730, these pieces were wildly popular and ultimately they grew in scope to the point that they formed their own distinct genre, namely the opera buffa. Now it's easy from our 21st century perspective to make a big assumption that this is the moment where the conflict started between an aristocratic elite who legitimized high serious art and a larger uneducated group of citizens who gorged on low-class pop culture. But history shows us that it wasn't true then, and I'd argue that isn't quite true now. In fact, it's fascinating that the French noble courts were very quick to open their opera house doors to a more general public. That happened as early as the first part of the 17th century in some courts, though public concerts would come along about 50 years after that. And in a twist that I find very funny, Though French kings were terribly interested in trying to control the opera buffa audience to make sure that most people seeing it were low class, they actually weren't able to because their aristocrats wanted to see these hilariously funny plays, too. By the time we get to the late 18th and 19th century, the French and industrial revolutions, of course, radically changed Europe, and they upped the ante of this mixing of opera audiences even more. Composers like Mozart, Rossini, Wagner, and Verdi aimed to actively democratize the art form. Now, there was this huge societal uh, cross-section of urban Europeans propelling opera composers and singers to levels of fame only experienced now by movie stars and pop singers. Now that opera artists were no longer exclusively relying on wealthy patrons to make their living, they themselves wanted to be as broadly popular as possible. Now that wasn't so that they could buy some kind of 19th century McMansion. Rather, they were responding to societal changes triggered by the French Revolution and they were earnestly trying to comment on the philosophical obsession of the Romantic era, which is, what's more important, personal freedom or the duty to family, state, and religion? This was the heart of the debate that generated decades of provocative opera, including pretty much every single excerpt I've included in this series, uh, all the way through Carmen, Tales of Hoffman, Puccini, and the Verismo operas, right up until the World Wars. Then everything changed, not just in the world, but in classical music too. A big rift opened between the avant-garde and they liked to sometimes uh, self-appoint themselves as the keepers of high art. In fact, there's a composer, Milton Babbitt, who wrote a very famous and kind of shocking article called, Who Cares If You Listen? On the other hand, uh, or the other side of the coin, there was American popular music, uh, including starting with really the uh, Broadway musicals and then continuing later in the century through pop music and rock music. But there's always been this body of pieces that live somewhere in between. We could mention pieces like the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess or Bernstein's Candide and West Side Story or even, uh, later, Sondheim's Les Mis, or The Phantom of the Opera, or even, as we turn this century, the movie Moulin Rouge. Now, as we arrive in the 21st century, after coming through all of that long history, uh, there are really two big trends to address with regards to where opera is now. First, there is this sort of misconception that the only music written for opera is this crunchy, really unlistenable opera. And that just simply is not the case. Um, If you want to listen to some crunchy, unlistenable opera, it certainly is out there. But there are lots of composers like Ricky Ian Gordon and Jake Hege who write uh, tunes that are just as hummable as Puccini and have mass appeal and all different kinds of themes um, really relevant still to a modern culture. Then the other big theme that I want to talk about that's going to um, form a backbone for our musical examples is that pop culture. Uh, especially film, but not just, uh, also cartoons and um, commercials, sometimes co-opt part of our operatic repertoire. And it's really easy for certain purists to think that that uh, only functions to cheapen what would otherwise be beautiful music. Um, In fact, I take a different argument there. I actually think that when filmmakers uh, and even people making commercials use pieces of opera with lots of sensitivity to the original context of what those pieces mean, Um, especially in film, there can be added layers of resonance that deepen the experience. If you happen to know the opera, you'll be aware of that happening, but sometimes it functions even on a subconscious level. And I have to say, uh, for me, many of you know that I grew up in Montana, where there is, there is now an opera company, or I think actually even two. But when I was growing up, opera was hard to come by, hard to find, and I didn't even know I had a taste for it. And my first and really only exposure were these snippets of opera that were coming to me through pop culture. For me, and for many people, it was a gateway drug, and it led me down this long path of discovery. And more than 20 years later, here we are now. Um, And I actually don't think that cheapens the experience at all. I think it makes it more democratic and more inviting to everybody. And uh, if that doesn't deserve a toast, I don't know what does. So thanks, pop culture, for bringing me and all of us here. Cheers. So now, let me introduce you to three of opera's highest pinnacles, which also happen to be three of the most often-quoted opera excerpts throughout contemporary pop culture today. The first piece I'd like to introduce you to is the Flower Duet from L'Acme by Leo Delibe, and it's an immensely popular piece, even though the opera it comes from is almost never performed in its entirety. This duet is usually performed by two women. Uh, Tonight, I'll be performing it with two of myself. Uh, But you should know that the music and poetry evoke a mythologized and exotic orient and the beautiful flowers surrounding the two characters in the scene. Now, in popular culture, British Airways used this duet to depict the feeling of travel to exotic places. But filmmakers are also drawn to it. It's been used in Laura Croft's Tomb Raider uh, and to depict the sensual relationship between two vampires in the 1983 horror movie The Hunger. But as you listen, I bet you'll hear how the music's lush beauty would easily speak directly to generations of contemporary art makers. i The next piece I'd like to explore with you is Puccini's Un Bel Di from Madama Butterfly, which is easily one of the most top ten recognizable opera arias ever written. The story, in a teensy tiny nutshell, is this. A young Japanese geisha shuns her family and religion of origin to marry an American soldier on shore leave. They spend a night of passion together. And when he leaves, she assumes that the relationship is real. She learns she is pregnant and she bears him a son. The very few people who are still in her life tell her that he has moved on and left her behind, and the baby behind. But three years of waiting later, she sings this song, Un di and it's her affirmation of what she thinks will happen when he finally returns for her, proving all of her detractors wrong. Now, the poetry of this aria evokes a beautifully heartbreaking mix of hope and delusion. But today, I'd like to perform this famous aria without its text, as a piano solo. Even without the words, you can hear how the melody's aching and longing might attract the makers of the movie Fatal Attraction, who included it in the film. And uh, I just want to go on the record here saying this is a perfect... Example of them being sensitive to the original context and using it for the added layers of meaning in their own work. The final piece I want to perform tonight is Nessun Dorma from Puccini's final and unfinished opera Turandot. In this, one of the most famous tenor arias, the character Prince Calaf falls in love with a beautiful but cold Princess Turandot. To win her hand in marriage, he must successfully answer three riddles. He excitedly stays awake the entire night before his audience with her and triumphantly asserts, vincero, or I will win. This aria appears all over popular culture, partly because of the beauty and steadfast confidence of the music, but more practically because Pavarotti sang it for the BBC's coverage of the 1972 World Cup and again at the TV coverage in 1990. It has also appeared in a ton of films, most famously, The Witches of Eastwick and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Now, I remember the first time I heard Pavarotti's recording of this aria. I was driving, and as he sang the final glorious high B, I spontaneously burst into tears. It's a tremendously powerful aria that gets our emotions churning as only opera can, so you should definitely be on the lookout for any time somebody uses this aria because they're probably trying to harness its message of vincero and twist your emotions. The first words of Dorma mean that no one is sleeping, nor should they sleep, because Prince Calaf is keeping his vigil and he is trying to figure out how to solve her riddles. I hope that you'll feel my belief that our city, our art form, and even our world ultimately vinceró and overcome the just tremendous situation that we find ourselves in during this pandemic. And with that uh, I'd like to sing this aria for you and cheers. An immense pleasure it is to get a chance to sing that aria for you. I hope that if you thought that this music was beautiful when I sing it, that this will just whet your curiosity and your appetite to search it out from real opera singers. Uh, Not just the famous opera singers like Pavarotti who have famously recorded it, but I hope you'll keep checking out our amazing digital offerings from LA Opera. Stay cool, stay healthy, stay happy. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.
0: You've been listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.